If you would take out your copies of God's word with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter 23. Back in Luke today. Luke chapter 23. We will be looking at the crucifixion of Christ today. At the one end, a tragic portion of scripture. We had also, for our sakes, a tremendously joyful passage of scripture. I'm going to read this passage and then I will pray. And we will begin our service. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, that is Jesus, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged and railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh Jesus, we thank you for this time that you have given to us. A time where we are able to look into your word and see wonderful truths out. Lord, I ask that you would empower me to preach this word, to show the beauty of this word, and ask that we would all be able to see it and be changed by it. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. No one is as blind 
as the blind person who thinks he sees. I've actually had a little bit of personal experience about this. I remember once I was, had a terrible sickness when I was a child and was needed to be given some medicine, which side effects were drowsiness. I had taken it the early part of the day and fell asleep and had slept through most of the day and woke up at 6 p.m. But I thought I had slept through the entire night and I was there at 6 a.m. instead. And when my mother came in to offer me dinner, I said, it's far too early for dinner at 6 a.m. She said, no, son, it's, it's not. It's, it's 6 p.m. And I, even though I was the firstborn and very trusting of my mother, began to debate her instead of see the truth of what she was saying. I ignored my digital clock, which said that it was p.m. instead of a.m. I ignored the, the television programming, which was evening programming instead of the stuff that was on in the morning. And it wasn't until I saw the moon an hour later that I was finally convinced that it was, in fact, evening. My father calls this cognitive lock. And this is something that anybody can experience. This is something that when you go through a scuba diving training, they warn you about. If you go to a certain depth, you can experience what is called nitrogen narcosis. It makes you think that you are somewhere else than you actually are. And some have actually taken off their diving equipment because they believed to be at the surface and they wanted to continue the conversation they were having with the fish at that moment. This is why it's so important to go with a dive buddy. To recognize that you are experiencing these things and force you to go to the surface to relieve of your symptoms. So blindness can be a funny thing, a dangerous thing, but it is soul-destroying when we are blind to the things of God. Especially when we think we see clearly. One of the biggest tools in that is self-righteousness. Believing ourselves to be righteous in and of ourselves when we are actually sinful and need the gospel of Christ. That's what we're going to see here today. See loads of self-righteousness as we look at this passage. But let's be very careful. As we look at this passage and see people mocking Jesus on the cross, that we don't go to Jesus and say, well, thank the Lord, I'm not like those smug people over there. When we look at this text, we have to be careful and see how we do the same thing and be alerted to and avoid these sins and run to Christ, our Savior. So we're going to look at two points today, as we usually do, as you can see on the back of your prayer guide. Self-righteousness blinds you so that you can't see the truth. Self-righteousness blinds you so you can't see the truth, point number one. But point number two is that humble trust and repentance in Christ leads you to salvation. That's what this passage is here to tell us today. So let's see how that's done. So we pick up in verse 26. Here Jesus is being led away to be crucified. Now the other gospel accounts fill in for us a a bit of the story. Because it says that Christ was unable to carry his own cross. Which is why they had to have Simon of Cyrene carry it for him. In other gospel accounts we note that Jesus has been scourged first. So be a horrible whipping that would take place and probably had lost enough blood to where this he was too weak or at least too slow to be able to carry this cross. Roman soldiers would have never carried a cross because there was too much shame associated with that type of death. So they found someone else to go and do it, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, likely a Jewish 
person. Cyrene is on the northern part of Africa. It would have been a Greek settlement at that time. Uh, in Mark, his two sons are mentioned. As it's possible that his sons were later members of Christ's church, as we see. And it's possible, as in Romans 16, that is the, the Rufus might be the son that's mentioned there. So all of these gospel accounts note that it is Simon of Cyrene that's carrying this cross. It says that he carries him and he follows on behind Jesus. It's worth noting here and pausing earlier on in Luke, we are told to take up our cross and to follow after Jesus. This is a vivid example of what that looks like of discipleship. The rest of the world looking on would see us following what looks to be a dead man walking. Why on earth would you follow after this sort of a Messiah? Why would you be associated with all of this shame? But yet that's exactly what Christ calls us to do. We're called to be like Simon, following along, bearing this shame, bearing this association with Jesus, even as we follow him to the cross. But it's quick that Luke turns around and looks at verse 27 and sees that there is a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. There is some division as to whether or not it is these people are lamenting genuinely for Jesus or whether this was a concern that this has gotten this far out of hand that they would like to see Jesus punished, but maybe not to this point. And I said, there is some debate about that, but I'm not sure that that's the most important thing. The most important thing is what Jesus reacts to it. That's what we see in verse 28. He addresses the women specifically, which is rare. This is the one of Luke is the only one to record this particular conversation. As he says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Notice that Jesus is going to the cross, and yet he's still more concerned about other people uh, than he is about himself in this moment. And he goes on to say, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. This is a really striking statement for this time because usually it's the other way around. If you didn't have children, that was considered to be some sort of curse from God. So to not be able to bear children was something of a shameful thing that you would hide. Indeed, we saw that in the beginning of this book when Elizabeth was sad that she was unable to have children and felt like she was bearing shame because of that. But here Jesus is saying times are going to get so bad here in Jerusalem, you're going to be better off having, having not have had children. Because if you did, you would be more concerned about them. And indeed, what he's talking about here is the fall of Jerusalem. And about, it's going to take place about 40 years, give or take, after Jesus had said that. If you remember, back a few months ago, we had talked about that in the earlier chapters. It really was a disaster. And when one of the Roman generals wrote about the fall of Jerusalem and had expressed it almost in compassionate terms, how sad he was of what a destruction of things that he saw here in the city. And that's what Jesus is telling them that they need to mourn about. He's not concerned for himself. He's concerned for the people. People would rather have not have had families. And in fact, in verse 30, they would rather not be alive. They ask for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, lest they have to face this judgment that's there. 
Then he gets to verse 31 and says something kind of interesting. It says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? A lot of commentaries spilled a lot of ink determining what this means. This reference shows up in other passages in Ezekiel, almost always in some sort of terms of judgment, that the God, God was going to destroy both the green and the dry wood. However, the, the questions are, the, some of the question of who are they? Is it the Romans? Is it the Jewish people? Is it some form of talking about God? And who is supposed to be the greenwood? Is it Jesus? Is it the current people that's here? What's the drop? There has been all of these things, but I think we could, in some ways, combine all of this together for Jesus to say, if people are going to look at me, Jesus, innocent and perfect, and they're going to judge him with crucifixion, what is this going to mean for the rest of the people who are indeed guilty? What will this be like when they face the judgment of God? I think that's a drawing for a very, it's a very powerful question. If this is what's happening to Jesus. What hope is there for the rest? A, a dire warning of judgment. But then we are led here to Golgotha, the place called the skull. Now notice how Luke talks about this with crucifixion. When we think about the crucifixion of Christ or when you see movies about the crucifixion of Christ, a lot of time is spent with the actual physical nailing of Jesus to the cross. And for sure, in Hollywood, it's a dramatic picture, and there's a lot of time spent with it. But notice how Luke does crucifixion. It almost is an aside. As he mentions that two that were came to, to be put to death with him in verse 33... And there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Almost incidental. You could almost skip it if you blinked. The time is not spent on the agony of Jesus on the cross because that's not really where the real suffering was. Jesus was going to be bearing the sins of the world on the cross and bearing the wrath of God, which was far worse than nails in wood. Thousands of people had been crucified. But only one has taken all the sins of all the world. This is where Jesus has been taken. He has one on his right, one on his left. Given fulfilling what we saw in Isaiah earlier, he's numbered among the transgressors. If people were passing by and looking up, seeing three people up on the cross, there wasn't anything to differentiate the three. You just assume all of them are guilty of the same thing. One being perfectly innocent. And yet again, Jesus, verse 34, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, being concerned with other people, being concerned for the very people that are calling for his crucifixion and calling for his nailing. We do see that this prayer is indeed answered. It's in Acts chapter 2. The people react to the realization that they had killed the Lord of glory. They're able to embrace and receive the gospel. But now we come to this point in the passage where I want us to spend a little bit more time. I want to slow down and focus. Here, Jesus, again, who has done nothing wrong and has come to this point in his life where people are killing him. And we get to verse 35. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself 
if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. What's happening here? This is a rather remarkable passage. Because if we, were, if we had time, if we were to look at Psalm 22, all of these things are being said. In Psalm 22, David is mourning the fact there are people out here who are looking and said, He trusted in the Lord, let him save him, mocking at David's peril. But of course, as we get to the end of the psalm, we see God is delivering the one that everyone's mocking in fulfillment of the scripture. And this was something that was out of the Hebrew psalm book. The psalms would have been like our hymn books today. The people who are here saying these words from Psalm 22 grew up singing these things. But they're singing the words of the bad guy. But it doesn't connect. They don't see that they are fulfilling this very passage. Indeed, we see an earlier them casting lots to divide up his garments, gambling for his clothing, something that was also mentioned in Psalm 22. It's like big blinking lights. It's like, there is something you should be paying attention to here. This should sound familiar. But they don't. They're blind. And they go on, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now, for us, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because we understand the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one is the one who's going to set us free from all of our sin. How is he going to do that? He's going to die on the cross for our sins. This is something that we would, presumably, if we were standing there, we would think that we would say to ourselves, this is what the Christ, the Messiah was always supposed to do. Haven't you read Isaiah 53? Crushed for our sins, by his stripes we're healed. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. So why don't they see that? Wouldn't it make more sense to say, you are the Christ. That's why you're up on the cross. Saving us from our sin. But that's not how they saw it. As we've mentioned many times before, they looked at the Messiah as a political figure. One who would set them free from the politics of Rome. And if that's the case as to what we're looking for, then seeing someone who has been crucified by that very government, that doesn't seem to be a very powerful political figure, does it? Been killed by the very people he was supposed to kick out. And there they are mocking him. Same thing with the soldiers. They're joining in. Well, if you're the king of the Jews, where's all your people to rescue you? You're able to nail you to the cross without a fight. In fact, your people are the one who's turned you over. You're no king. You're no Messiah. Because if you were, you would do this. Does that sound familiar, that structure? If you are this, then do that. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Satan's last try. If you are the Christ... The promised one, chosen of God. Why are you suffering like that? In fact, why don't you prove that you're the Christ, the Son of God? You know what will impress the people? Coming off that cross. That'd do it. Maybe they believe in you. Maybe you could do this without having to do the whole dying thing. Satan already offered that earlier, if you remember. If you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Same tactic here again. 
Even if Satan can't convince Jesus to do it, at least he can kind of rub it in a little bit. He's supposed to be the king of the Jews. What kind of king are you to be? You've come into your own and your own have not received you. You're supposed to be the Christ. But you're here you are hung on a tree. And we all know, as it says in Deuteronomy, cursed is he who is hanging on a tree. This doesn't look like the figure that everyone's wanting to see. That's where you can see how people are so angry. They wanted a political deliverer. And what they got was a dead king on a cross. So how do they get here? How can we find ourselves here? That's where I want us to point and take a look at self-righteousness for a moment. What did these people think was their biggest problem? It was Rome. Having to send all of our tax money over to Rome. They can kill us whenever they want to. They can put laws over us. Rome is our problem. We need to get Rome off our backs. We're going to find anybody who can to make this happen. They didn't think that their biggest problem was sin. Because that's what Jesus said he was here to address. In fact, that's what his name means. So the angel had said, call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not from Rome. Not from financial burdens. Save them from their sins. And again, those that had grown up singing Psalm 22 and reading Isaiah 53 in the synagogues should have seen what was happening here. Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. And this king is laying down his life for his people, showing that there has been no greater love other than this. This is what has led these people to mock Christ. We can do the same, even as Christians. Ever been frustrated or angry with what God has done in your life? Doesn't necessarily mean that you say the words, God, I'm angry at you. Just the simple act of being angry, frustrated at what life has dealt you. Talk about that in euphemistic terms. You know, we want to say life is treating me hard because we want to say God is treating me hard. But we, don't, we know that sounds irreligious, so we'll substitute that. When we say things like that, we are forgetting what our biggest problems were. Uh, there was an illustration of someone. If, you, if someone had fallen and had a cut in their neck and was bleeding very badly, rushed him to the surgeon, and before the surgeon could do the operation, he says, I actually have a splinter I'd like you to look at first here in my finger. The doctor, if he's a good doctor, is going to ignore the splinter and deal with the bleeding neck. That's the real problem. And for us, our bleeding neck, our real problem is our sin. And this is what Christ is promising to deliver us from. But for us to say, it's like, yeah, I know, salvation is nice, but what I really mean Is this car to be fixed? Is my marriage to be worked on? When we focus on these other things, we we fall victim to self-righteousness. I shouldn't have to go through this. I deserve better than that. We don't. We don't deserve better than anything that we're given. When we're doing great, when we're doing the worst that we've ever been doing in our lives, we don't deserve these things. 
doesn't mean that hurts don't hurt. doesn't mean that sad things aren't sad. But what it does mean is that we don't get angry at God for those things. We look to him even through our grief and saying, I don't understand what this is. But I know the problem that you've really taken care of. The biggest thing, which was my sin. You are the Christ. And you are saving others. Even as he's going through all of this. The things that make us disappointed are often what reveal what we really think about God. How we view our circumstances and how we react to them is often what we're really hoping God does for us. By having a clear picture of what Jesus has actually done, sacrificing himself for our sins, that we begin to see what's happening. We can see this further illustrated by one of the criminals. Adverse circumstances have not changed this one. In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Do something. Get us off this cross. But then look at the second criminal. This is the one that illustrates our second point today. That humble trust and repentance in Christ leads you to salvation. This is a remarkable thing that this criminal sees here in verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We're all on the cross here, buddy. And in fact, we're going on into the next verse. We're all on the same cross and we actually deserve it. We don't have any standing to look at Jesus and say, why aren't you doing something? It's like we are the ones who got ourselves on this cross because of our bad things. He's on the cross out of nothing that he's done. He sees him as the righteous person that he actually is. How on earth is this possible? As commentators pointed out, there were a number of people that didn't believe Jesus after he was raised from the dead. How is it that this criminal sees the glory of Jesus as Jesus is dying? It could be that maybe this is, because he was likely another Jewish citizen, it was likely that he grew up singing these psalms too. Reading Isaiah 53 as well. And had gone wayward and now sees all of these people fulfilling all of these scripture passages and says, oh, here it is. It could be. But I think this points to, of anything, that of God revealing himself to this person. Here you are. He's on the cross. The person who's supposed to save him from death is currently dying. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is such a beautiful sentence. And there is so much here we could have a whole sermon series out of just this one sentence. But we won't right now. But, but let's break down and take a look at things quickly anyway. Notice what he says here. The first word is Jesus. This is actually rare that Jesus is called by his name. Usually it is referred to as Lord or Rabbi, or teacher, something like that. But here he is referring to him as Jesus. Very personal, intimate sort of reckoning. He doesn't really know Jesus personally. I just met him. 
Here he's referring to that. Why does he use this word? And I think it's because he recognizes who Jesus is, the one to save from sin. The criminal recognizes that that his biggest problem is not even crucifixion at the moment. His biggest problem is his own sin. And he sees someone that can do that, that can save him from his sin. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees a future for Jesus that is definite. He knows there is a kingdom coming. And he sees rightly that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. You want to be talking to the king if you want to be entered into the kingdom. And this is what he's asking him. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice also, he is putting all of his hope on Jesus. The only hope that I have is that you remember me. He doesn't say, Jesus, everybody else here has been mocking you, but I hope that you've noticed I have not been doing that. And I hope you'll take that into account. Maybe you'll also notice it was his idea to do all of the thieving. I was just kind of along for the ride. I'm not as bad as these other people here, and I hope you'll take that into account. No, he recognizes that he's guilty. He's already said that earlier on when he was talking to the other guy. We are being judged justly for our actions. He knows he is a sinner, and he knows he has nothing to offer Jesus. He can't tell him, Lord, I promise if you'll get me off this cross, I will live a good life for you. That's not going to happen. He's going to die. He knows that. If you've gotten to the cross, the Romans are experts on death. He is going to die today. He throws himself at Jesus' mercy. And look what Jesus says here. Truly, I say to you, today, You will be with me in paradise. In the same place in heaven that Jesus is going. No different tiers of heaven. One spot. Everyone's going to the same spot. Because it's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done right here. Alistair Begg imagines what it would be like for this criminal after he's died and is on his way to paradise and he's met at the pearly gates by Peter. Ignore the time problem. And he meets up and he says, how is it that you are getting up here into heaven? Let's take a look at your church attendance record. And he says, I didn't have any church attendance record. I came to Jesus about 30 minutes before I died. It's like, all right. How about a baptism certificate? Do you have that? No. How about a theology exam? Do you know what justification and sanctification is? No, I don't, actually. Well, have you done anything good? Well, actually, no. I was a career criminal and was crucified right before I died for those said crimes, and I didn't have time to do anything else good. And so he says, so how are you here? And he said, because Jesus said I could come. And that's it. Jesus said I could come. That's the promise that's offered to us. This is a beautiful thing to kill our self-righteousness, isn't it? 
All of us Presbyterians who have mastered doctrine doesn't mean anything when it comes to getting into heaven. You can quote to them the entire Westminster Confession of Faith. And Peter's not going to care. Not that Peter's the actual gatekeeper of heaven, but it's going to be, have you put your trust in Christ? Has Jesus said, you can come? Has Jesus invited you? Well, you say, oh, I don't know. I haven't gotten anything in the mail. What does it look like to have an invitation from Jesus? It's to say, are you a sinner? Come you, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You weary and heavy laden from your sin? Do you recognize that that is your real biggest problem? Not a car payment or a house payment or noisy kids or anything else? That your main problem is your sin? Do you see yourself as justly deserving your death and punishment? Well, congratulations. You have an invitation. Come to Jesus, because he says you can come. He looks for sinners, and he invites them and compels them to come in. This is a beautiful thing for us to take to the world. That's our takeaway. Jesus loves sinners and wants them to come to him. Will you, if you come to faith in Christ, have your life transformed? Yes, but that's an effect of your salvation, not the cause of it. And for us who are believers, when we are called to follow after Christ, to carry our cross and follow after him, it's a daily reminder. If you have to remind yourself of this every day, every hour, do it. It's not because it's anything good that I did. Why was Simon of Cyrene compelled to put the cross? He was there. Why are we called to come to him? Not from anything we've done. We're here. It's a mercy that God gives to us, that Christ gives to us. That'll kill our self-righteousness for ourselves. It'll kill our self-righteousness when looking at other people. Say, it's like, well, God doesn't save people like that. He doesn't save sinners like this. Yeah, he does. None of us get to say, I'm above this person. I'm going to a new tier of heaven. Nope. We'll all be with Jesus if we have put our faith in Christ and turned from our sins. He says, you can come. So our charge today, if you don't know that that's where you stand, then get right with God today. When Jesus said to the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise, he does give that criminal one advantage in that the criminal knew exactly when he was going to die. It was going to be that day. We don't know when today is for us. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years from now. We don't know. So settle your accounts with Christ today. Whatever it is that you've done, Jesus says you can come. Find this forgiveness And one day be with him in paradise. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord, we do thank you for giving us this gift of salvation. There is no way that we would be able to have this gift in and of ourselves. This salvation is indeed a gift. And you give it freely. So I ask... 
If there is anyone within the sound of my voice who does not know you, I pray that they would stop right now and put their trust in you. That they would not look to any good works. They would not try to compare themselves to other people. But they would see that they are indeed justly deserving of your wrath and punishment. But yet because of your stripes, your cross, your taking of the death penalty for us, absorbing all the wrath of the Father, they can go free and be raised up to new life just as you were. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.